Hello, my name is Christopher Agron, and you're listening to Catholic vs. Catholic. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe it. Uh, well, like I mentioned, uh, my name is Christopher Agron. I'm 25 years old, Puerto Rican. I grew up in, actually, my father's in the military, so I moved around growing up a lot. It's like a really interesting experience, actually. I think it's a good one uh, that I wish on everyone, that everyone gets a chance to move and experience different cultures. I'm Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic. A uh, little disclaimer right there, but just because you were born into a faith, it doesn't mean you really take it seriously. So, and I, I don't, I don't think it's a family thing. I think it's a very much an individual thing that I had to cultivate myself. Um, how did I get to where I'm at uh, and what I believe? Well, I think like most credo Catholics, I just kind of was going through the motions up until a certain point where I decided to take it more seriously. And for me, that was shortly after confirmation. I started attending retreats and they were phenomenal. I kind of became a retreat junkie. I went to like all of them, like probably met everyone in my diocese because I was in every retreat in the diocese. And that was really good for me. I, you know, it really surrounded me with, with positive role models and, and helped me learn the faith. Um, there was like a really funny defining moment. It was around like midnight to 1 a.m. when I was uh, had just graduated high school and I was just locking up the church because I had done whatever youth meeting I was doing at the moment. And I bumped into the priest who was also locking up the church. And he's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, you know, God's work never ends. I'm just locking up. I just finished. And he's like, you should really apply for the youth minister position. I was like, okay, like I don't have a formal education in theology or anything like that. And he's like, no, but really you should. So it was a really good experience. As for like, you know, struggles in the faith, I would be being disingenuous if I didn't say that in the military, it was super hard to practice the faith for me. It, it, it really would. But I, but I think that's kind of normal. I feel like most people have something similar to that when they go to college and it's more like, not being in the normal environment, not having control over who you're surrounded with. Can you talk a little bit more about your parents, your grandparents? Do you have any childhood memories? Like I'm talking about your early memories where there's maybe this, the first whiff of incense or the first sight of a, a religious or a priest. And what impression did that have on you? And what is your early introduction to prayer? Can you just talk about the family and the, and the community from a very early childhood perspective? What impressions do you remember now and how did that impact you? Wow. Yeah. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I really appreciate it. I, I uh, actually, like I said, I was a cradle Catholic, but I think uh, I understated it. My, my parents were both youth leaders and just generally extremely involved in their respective communities and the faith. And that definitely gave me a very positive impression to begin with. I, I can, as far back as I can remember, we've been going to mass on Sundays and I have to, have to, have to, have to honor my parents and give credit where credit is due and say that they've been like phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal role models. But it, there's like this weird bias, you know, of um, they're your parents. So you kind of unfortunately don't, there's certain things that you have to learn from other people and have other mentors. And I think that's like a normal part of like child development, psychologically, like you have to leave your family and kind of get into the environment to learn. But um my grandfather, he was the choir director, actually, at his uh, church. 
and my mother was in the choir and my dad met my mother because he was also in the choir. So like that, that kind of says it all. They've known each other since they were like in high school and they're like childhood sweethearts and uh, they were very much a faith-centered couple. And what about your own vocation? Do you see yourself getting married or entering the priesthood or becoming a religious or what sort of ideas have you been playing with? I really think I'm called to marriage. Most people that I encounter usually, and and it's almost frustrating. Maybe you've gotten this too, man. When uh, most people are like, oh, you should, you should be a priest or you should consider priesthood. And it's like, I almost feel like it's like a, um, a way of, rationalizing the fact that you love Jesus so much and put him at a high priority and kind of in a, Oh, you're different. You should be a priest where it's like, dude, I think everyone should love Jesus and put him at this high priority. There's a certain beauty that people can easily recognize and acknowledge when it comes to loving our Lord, but there's always a rationalization with it. And I was, I've been, I've been studying the work of a psychologist. Uh, His name is Dr. Gabor Mate, if I'm not mistaken, and he um, says and has come to the conclusion that addiction isn't only related to a substance. Addiction is any behavior that has chronically a negative outcome that you continue to do. Any behavior. And I think that's really interesting because under that definition, I think it's fair to say that everyone has addictions. That's just another way of describing something that we in the Catholic faith have known all along, which is that we are enslaved to sin. There are things in our lives that are really negative and it's, and it's not as simple as, Hey, I'm just going to stop doing that. <laughs> and I, I really, I'm really fascinated by the study of, of, of addiction and how they've been able to treat that by addressing underlying traumas, pains, or self-esteem issues. Cause I really feel like, by growing in, in community with the church, by growing in your love for God, by growing in your love for your neighbor, it becomes a lot easier for you to love yourself. And it becomes a lot easier for you to not be a slave to addictions or to sin or to X, Y, and Z. I've been like super fascinated by this for like the last month. I've been a total nerd about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you're so young and you're dealing with young people, I do want to ask about sexual morality and masturbation and pornography because those are issues that I think aren't talked about enough and they're deadly for the family, for marriage, for society at large. Do you deal with those issues directly or indirectly and how do you deal with them? You could pray the rosary all day, but if you have triggers that are going to lead you through a path that will lead you to sin, like whether it be with like, you know, your laptop is there with and pornography is one click away, or you are in a uh, occasion of sin with your significant other. Praying the rosary is extremely effective, but if you are setting up your logistics badly, you know, you're putting yourself in an occasion of sin. And if you look at the catechism, if I'm not mistaken, it says that to make it out of an occasion of sin without sinning is like almost miraculous, you know? So you're banking on a miracle by not setting up your logistics. Uh, so I'm when I when I when I speak with youth about this, I really heavily emphasize of like it's not a fair fight when you're dealing with an occasion of sin. You're setting yourself up for failure. So yes, absolutely, you should absolutely pray the rosary, get in your community, uh, and bolster your faith and your relationship to Jesus as much as possible. But also, don't forget that like if you 
remove the temptation, then you're setting yourself up for success. Uh, Cause you know, like the, how, how hard is it to say, okay, well, my computer, I'll use it for pornography at this time. And that's happened, you know, over and over and over. Like it's a pattern of sin in my life. How hard is it to remove that? Like, really, like it's not hard. So I feel like it's underrated, like playing logistics properly. There's a big dichotomy in the States, I think, between the left and the right. And it's a fairly recent thing. I think it was the French Revolution that introduced this left versus right notion. But it seems to be a big pressure for people that live in the United States of America. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you deal with it as a Catholic? Because I I always identify as a Catholic. I, I don't identify on the left or on the right. And I don't see how anyone could feel comfortable putting themselves into a neat and tidy little box on those political scales. Can you talk from your perspective personally and in a more general way about the atmosphere in the United States with politics, how it dominates, or it seems to at least from my perspective in Canada? Wow. Um, I, I think it's even more prevalent to people in colleges too. There's like a weird agenda in colleges to where they're really pushing the left for some reason, uh, especially in California. Um, I, I'm very particular about my decisions to allow things to come into my life. I think whether or not we are consciously choosing our influences, we're being influenced. That can be with what we choose to watch on TV. That can be what, we, what music we choose to listen to. And so I do not indulge in... Uh, regular news media there's certain certain medias that i trust more than others when it comes to news uh but it's just such a joke because they're they both have their own agenda you know the right and the left they both are exaggerating to get their way and so there's i i it just ruins the credibility of both and politics here is hilarious like you like (laughs) oh man i just got back from uh, from uk and I was talking to a friend who's Irish and she was complaining about her politics. And I was like, your politics are laughable compared to how awful, how controversial and obscene the politics in the U.S. are. It's ridiculous. But I think, honestly, the, your, your stance and in, in that you very much clarify and identify that you are Catholic politically as well. Because if you're Catholic, you're Catholic all the time. I think that's just the right answer. And that's how I go about it as well. This brings to mind the issue of abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, so-called. How would you assess the situation today, particularly among the youth? Is there a strong movement towards a pro-life stance or how do you see that today? It's polarized. It's polarized. I'll put it that way. I don't think, I honestly don't feel like we're winning that battle. I, but I but I'll tell you what it's polarized. The people who are pro-life are very pro-life. The people who are pro-choice are very close-minded. I had a funny exchange about pro-life. Uh, somebody on Instagram commented on a on a photo that I you know to explain the photo briefly. It, it had like different stages of people's lives. You know, starting with like you know a fetus, going up to like a small baby, and then a child, and then a an older gentleman and then like even older than that. And then like, you know, like a senior citizen. And it was like a clump of cells at different stages, you know, it was something like that. And then this person commented, Oh yeah. Well, if you were in a burning hospital 
and there was a, ton of, like an 11 year old child or five year old child, and then also a jar full of a thousand fetuses, which one would you save? Obviously that situation is awful, but it's hilarious. Cause I actually was, a it, when I was in the military, I was, I, I was like a medic. So like emergencies are my thing. And it's like mission, enemies, troops, terrain, time, and civilian considerations. And when someone says the answer is METC, what they're saying is gather all the information you can at that situation and then make a decision based on that situation. And so my answer to her is if I were in that situation, I would make the best decision I could in that situation. And I wouldn't lose sleep about it because my decision was the best decision that I could make at that moment. And I would not, uh, trust me, I wouldn't lose it like a wink of sleep. It's crazy. It's hilarious that they want to do all these mental gymnastics to slip people into philosophical and logical fallacies. But it's like, it's a simple question. Is it human or not? Like, it's just a simple question. Yeah. So speaking of philosophy, I came to God through philosophy in 2009. I don't know if you know that about me, but what role does philosophy play in your own personal journey? Do you spend a lot of time reading those sorts of things or are you are you not interested at all in philosophy and natural uh, theology? You know, honestly, I completely, completely, completely appreciate it and love it. I, I'm not really a smart person. I'm not. I'm like really good at looking stuff up. Like I'm a technical person. I had a one friend who was like a brilliant human being. Um, we walked home together and he was like full on atheist. And so we would just have these conversations like every single day while we walked home together, like, you know, 30 or 45 minutes. And that was actually how I got my formation is because like I said, like I'm not the smartest dude and I'll admit it. Like I, I don't expect me to know things off the top of my head, but I'm like a champion at looking stuff up. <laughs> like so like i'll get back to you and that was cool and you know it was like a really very fruitful thing he actually is is christian now so i mean that was awesome <laughs> what is the role of suffering in your life and in the lives of people around you and how does that play in with the call to holiness and the path to heaven the path to god can you talk a little bit about obstacles and pain and suffering having just gone through some trials in terms of health i think it's probably fresh on your mind right kind of i, I didn't even think about it until this morning like first of all um <laughs> so what this is what happened just so that the listeners also know what happened with my health i went to uk and i had some lebanese barbecue and if you haven't had Lebanese barbecue before, I'll pray for you because you need to. Like, for, it's like <laughs> and so this Lebanese barbecue place, it was like a little hole in the wall. You, there was nowhere to sit. It was just like you go there, grab your barbecue and leave. It was like the best barbecue ever. And so I went there like literally, literally I went there like 12 times. But it was it was delicious. I ended up catching a, a bug. And but luckily, I didn't get sick until I got to the U.S. So luckily, I didn't have to go to the emergency room in the U.K. That would have been scary. Um, and so I, I, you know, I went to the emergency room with my with my dad now because I'm helping him move to California here shortly. And uh, so they gave me this antibiotic named azithromycin. Now, I've used azithromycin before. I've given prescribed it before uh, just because in the military, I had that kind of scope of practice. But I did not know that if you were low in magnesium, azithromycin, because of its mechanism of action, would affect your nervous system and alter the, the electricity that's being sent to your heart and alter your heart rate and could like, legitimately cause heart failure and kill you, like straight up. It's fatal. And so 
I'm taking this uh, antibiotic and I'm having trouble. What I, what I thought was shortness of breath and trouble breathing. But what's really going on is that my heart isn't pumping oxygen everywhere. So I think I can't breathe, but it's that I'm having very little oxygen distributed through my body. And I'm like, Hey dad, I think we should go back to the hospital. And while we're going over there, my whole world started to get the size of my fist. Like I started getting tunnel vision. And again, in retrospect, it's because I had no oxygen being pumped effectively. So I was like, it felt, I knew what it felt like because I've done jujitsu before. It felt like someone was choking me out and I was running out of oxygen. And so I'm walking to the emergency room with my dad and I realized that I'm probably going to lose consciousness. So as I'm losing consciousness, I'm just telling my dad like, Hey dad, so they should do an EKG on me. They should monitor my heart, make sure I don't die. They should give me oxygen and fluids. I need, and I just started like rattling off like all the medical treatments that I expect them to do if I lose consciousness <laughs> so that if it happened, he would like know what's going on, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, luckily uh, they were able to get me my heart under control and I didn't lose consciousness. But then it was like a running joke that I like, I couldn't do anything because I really couldn't, my heart had swollen due to the damage that I had gotten. And so I couldn't do anything that increased my heart rate or I just pass out or die. So it was like a running joke of like, I can't listen to good music. Like I can't have fun. I can't make a joke. Like it's like, it was fun because I was with my dad. I think, and that's like, and like, this is super cliche and I totally, I'm sorry for being so cheesy, but that's exactly what I imagined my faith to be like. It's like, dude, it's like really difficult. It's super hard, but it's totally cool because God, my dad in heaven is with me. It's totally cool. It's going to be all right. And I'm enjoying our quality time together, but it's like pretty much, super, super difficult and hard. <laughs> wow. That is intense. So is that the closest you've come to dying? No, I've had like, um, I'm super over it. I've had so many near death experiences that I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Do they all reinforce your faith in um, the afterlife? Wow. You know, I've never thought about that. Most to be, if I'm going to be super honest with you, most of the times that I've been close to dying, I've not been as casual as this time. 10 times out of 10, if I'm dying, I'm trying to not die and doing everything in my power to not die. This was one of those times where I completely knew that it was out of my control. So I was just having a good sense of humor about it. <laughs> but I honestly feel a lot more relaxed going into near-death experiences if I'm in a state of grace. So can you, speaking of that, can you talk a little bit about confession and some of your own personal experiences, just in terms of the, the power of liberation and what you've seen in terms of transformation in the people around you, people you've worked with in terms of youth ministry and that sort of thing. The power of confession, I think, is really underrated in our world I think if people knew what it's like, they would rush, there would be lineups for the confessional 24 seven. So can you talk a little bit from your perspective about confession? Wow. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. A hundred percent. There's this, it's like a weird thing to where when you, I feel like if we talk about confession and, you know, getting vulnerable and, and admitting your faults, that doesn't sound like something you want to do, but if you do it, you realize it's something phenomenal and you want to do it all the time. It's one of those things that, like, in practice, it's way cooler than than talking about it. 
you know, I was, I was telling you that I was nerding out recently about studying a, a addiction and, and the psychological side of that. Well, there's a, there's the research, the leading, the bleeding edge research in psychology now is saying something that we've known all, all along, which is that making yourself vulnerable, admitting your faults, asking for forgiveness, being forgiven, all these things are extremely, extremely beneficial and healthy and good for your psychological well-being to do these things. And this is like, oh, that's funny because we do that like as well for me as often as possible. <laughs> do you like to go even if you don't have mortal sin? If you only have venial sins, do you still? You know like what? To go? I actually do because here's here's my thing with that. And I actually, I was once told by a, a priest that, hey, that's a venial sin and you didn't have to come in for that. Like, don't, don't come in for that. And I was like, in, uh, first of all, that's the worst thing you could ever tell anyone. You should never separate someone from the graces of God. Shame on you. <laughs> um, second of all, um, the thing with the, like the whole thing with venial sin is that there's that, there's like gray area of like how much intention was behind the venial sin. Is it really venial? And I'm just like, I don't, I back to like logist like how I like to be like very logistic based or like just very I'm very rational like I'm I'm just gonna not play that game and go as often as possible because why not because like what do I have to lose like oh I'm now I'm in a state of grace if I wasn't and if I was then I still got more graces like thank you Jesus <laughs> I just want you to talk a little bit about your prayer life what are some of your habits. Uh, what are some of the prayers that you do and so on and so forth? Can you just talk a little bit about your prayer life? Sure. You would love my my good friend, Paul Thigpen. He's a he's an author. He's written like 50 theological books. And he he was the first person I ever saw who was extremely deliberate about praying for others. He would write down on paper, name and intention. And then he would actually like bring it up in adoration twice or three times a week. And um, that was really interesting to me because of the way that he explained it to me is that by praying for others, you are growing closer to them. You're growing closer to our Lord. You're helping them grow closer to our Lord. Like it's like a win-win in all directions. And I really, really, really love that. And I kind of started following in his footsteps a little bit in that I'm very particular about my intentions being for others. Like if I tell you, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. If, if you give me a prayer request, it's going to happen. But how do you manage that so it doesn't become too much of a burden on you in terms of just the sheer number of people on your list? You know what I mean? Sure. It's, well, you don't have to go. I don't, I don't feel pressure to go through every single person every time I pray. And then also as much as possible, if someone asks me to pray for an intention, I do it on the spot. And again, like, I didn't, I feel like a lot of people do this, but it's something that I thought was extremely resourceful from Paul, who's just been like super, super, super positive and just a role model in my life. What do you think about the set it and forget it style of prayer? Because I, I've consecrated myself to Jesus through Mary with the Louis de Montfort uh, consecration. And so if I meet someone and they request prayers, I ask Mary to add them to my virtual list of daily intentions. And so they're, they're going to benefit every time I say any prayer. And so the upside to this set it and forget it technique is I don't need to have a paper list that becomes unmanageable very quickly. The downside is 
that I can, in my own conscious mind, pretty quickly forget about that person and what they're going through. So what advice do you have for me in terms of maybe balancing that set it and forget it approach with what your friend Paul does, where he's very literal with a list? Is there some sort of a happy medium? I feel like I thought that my my list would grow faster than it actually grew. Um, I do find it helpful to have uh, the concrete list. So say, oh, I just remembered so-and-so's intention. Let me text that person a little quick text to see how they're doing, see if there's anything that I could actually logistically help with other than prayers. And I, I think it, I think if nothing else, I really, really appreciate Paul's style because it builds community really, really well. But I mean, what you're doing is phenomenal. Like it's great. And so I just wanted to like affirm that 100% because quite frankly, like they're receiving, like you said, they're receiving the graces every time you, you pray. This brings to mind the idea of indulgences. Do you consciously think about indulgences every chance you get, or is it something that's in the back burner for you? I wish I wish your, your listeners could see the giant grin in my face. There was like a time in my life, specifically when I was like 15, and I just found out what indulgences were. And I became so obsessed. <laughs> I took it like a video game or something. I was like, I'm on a mission, right? And you do these little side quests. And then you get an indulgence. So let's do them. And it was like I like all fun and games. Um, <laughs> I honestly don't do that anymore. Um, but <laughs> I just like I was obsessed. Every time I did a prayer, I would make I would make sure to add in like in any indulgences that I could receive from X, Y, and Z that I may have forgotten or whatever. Uh, you, and just add that in because I think if I'm not mistaken, I think you have to be intentional about receiving the indulgence. Yeah, yeah, you do. Basically, every time you lift your thoughts to God, you are eligible for indulgences. And you have to be mindful that your intention is to gain indulgences in order to gain the indulgences. That's why I try to keep it on my mind, in the forefront of my mind. I don't think there's any moment of any day that you can't get an indulgence for it, as long as you lift your thoughts to God and you offer it up. It could be like, hey, something good happened give thanks, get an indulgence. Hey, something bad's happening to me. Offer it up, get an indulgence. It's like moment by moment all day long. There are all these opportunities. Like there's something, you know, psychologically to getting small wins and having them build momentum. And I think it, it something about indulgences in my brain, at least kind of gamified practicing my faith and doing my best to be the best me that God wants me to be. And it, it was really positive. Like that's such a good train to be on. <laughs> So speaking of good trips and good times and positive vibrations, I do always like to wrap up my interviews by having my guest speak directly to the audience. Uh, so what could you say to sort of give hope to anyone that's out there listening? Because a lot of my listeners haven't found religion. They haven't even found God yet. So what could you say to anyone that might be out there listening now? Here, uh... I, I would offer this. I mean, first of all, I, I, I'm like I told you before, I feel like my forte is talking to people who have not had an encounter with our Lord and don't share the same faith. Catholicism, and as, as you're well aware of, since you converted due to philosophy, is just the most true. Seeing the objective good that comes out of our faith, and I want to share this with you, 
uh, I don't know if you saw on my social that I was blessed enough to have the opportunity to go serve and give bring relief in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. It was a completely God-given blessing, completely out of my hands. It was almost surreal how things fell into place. I resigned as a youth minister, started a GoFundMe, gathered five or six thousand dollars, used that, communicated with a company that has tiny little water filters because Puerto Rico is a tropical island that rains daily. So bringing people water bottles, you know, which is a finite and trash producing thing is completely useless compared to bringing people a tiny water filter that can filter 100,000 gallons of water, you know, that's solving the problem. And so I was able to bring a ridiculous amount of aid for, and and I say that respective to like the fact that I'm just one person, but I'm backed up by a phenomenal community of people of faith. And when I got there to Puerto Rico, I met up with other people like me who were taking matters into their own hands because you can say what you want about the political state of Puerto Rico and whether or not the organizations like Red Cross and FEMA did a good job, but that was the biggest disaster, the worst hurricane on record. And it was a de- it was devastated. And when the government was failing, the communities were not. At the end of the day, it was loving your neighbor. It was literally people setting up in churches, aid stations, setting up in churches, relief stations, communicating with their friends and families and communities and people helping people that was what brought the the biggest amount of aid and what made the biggest difference. And it blew my mind to show up to help these uh, organizations that were just a bunch of ragtag veterans for the most part. And where were they, where were they based off of churches? Who were they working with? The faith communities. It's like, there's so much objective good. There's so much objective good. It's undeniable. But unfortunately, it doesn't get as much attention as, you know, whatever. So there's way more good people in the world than there are bad. The bad people are just louder. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.